Hey, welcome to Legendary. I'm Isadora Martindai, one of your hosts. Hey, I'm Adam Bloor, your other host. And today we are going to be talking about some stuff that follows on from last week's episode, which is Adam did a Japanese legend that he thought was going to be pretty dark. Turned out not to be dark. No, it was kind of fun. But we, I lightened it up with talking about Pegasus. Mm-hmm. And this week I'm going to do a Japanese thing, which turns out is really quite dark. <laughs> And Adam's going to do something much more fun to lighten it up on his end. Yeah, I think I think yours is, is much darker by, like, several factors. So, uh, straight up, we recorded my section of it yesterday, and I think we decided that perhaps the way I'd formatted it didn't work, so we're going to try it again a little bit differently. So Adam has heard this information before, mm-hmm. which is not what we try and do. We try and make it new information. But I'm going to give you guys all the trigger warning right now, which is today we're going to be talking quite a lot about self-harm and suicide and particularly with reference to the suicide epidemic in Japan. Yeah. And it's uh, some of the stuff we're going to talk about is really heavy. The fact is Japan is doing a phenomenal job of trying to counteract some of the social things that they are finding that their population are going through, which is phenomenal, and they should get huge amounts of praise for that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's never our intention with this podcast to make anybody uncomfortable. So we're just giving you this this warning at the beginning. If you feel like this might be uncomfortable for you to listen to, feel skip free ahead. To skip Adam's going to be fun. He's talking about squirrels. How about a fun squirrel? Yeah. I also want to say that I'm really not going to go, going to try and get most of the serious stuff done up front. And then we'll talk yeah. about the actual legends and things that are associated with it. We'll try to try to brighten it up a little bit at the end. Okay, so we're mostly going to be talking about a forest in Japan called Akihara, which I have practiced saying a lot. That was really good. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. It is a forest in Japan, and it is famously known and legendarily known as the Suicide Forest in Japan. It is the second biggest, most popular place in the world to commit suicide after the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. I'm going to tell you about it because it's really important to know, but actually then what I'm going to do is just jump into the mythologies around Mount Fuji and Akihara. Yeah. Uh, The suicide stuff is actually the smallest part. It's what interested me because I have a lot of personal experiences with mental health issues and... Uh, dealing with family and friends that uh, have suffered um, and I've lost friends through suicide and it was interesting to me that there was kind of an iconic legendary place that was associated with something that should really not be iconic or legendary. Mm -hmm. And I'm really glad to tell you guys about what it's about and how it's changing and also then tell you about the fun stuff like the Japanese cherry blossom princess who's supposed to also live there. Yeah. So we got some fun stuff coming too. All right, Japan. I spent about a month in Japan a couple of years ago and found it to be one of the most amazing experiences of my life. Um, and they have a really, really cool society and a lot of very friendly, helpful people. It tends to be a much more traditional society where traditionally elder generations have lived with the younger generations and they've grown old with their families and that's been who's looking after them on their family farms much like the rest of the Western world, that is changing and younger generations are moving into the cities, which has brought a problem to Japan that perhaps they haven't ever had before. Although I think other countries like maybe the US and the UK have been struggling with them for a while. So first up, Japan has a more tolerant or or used to have a much more tolerant attitude towards suicide than um, other a lot of other countries, and that was because it was considered an almost honourable practice within the military. It's not unfair to say that I think most people have seen the depiction of a samurai soldier falling on his sword when he has failed to complete one of the tests set out before him. And we, in our regular language, use the word kamikaze mm. to mean that somebody was acting recklessly with disregard for their own life, which was a form of suicide attack that the World War II Japanese soldiers employed at the word of the Emperor of Japan. And they encouraged suicide as an alternative to capture and torture. So there is definitely a huge cultural difference in 
the idea of taking your own life um, in Japan or historically there has been, and it wasn't seen as a dishonorable, cowardly end to a problem, but more as a alternative to a problem, or even at some points an honorable way of dealing with failure. Now, here's some statistics for you. In 2016, the country had the sixth highest suicide rate in the OECD at 15.2 people per 100,000. Just as a guideline, in the US in 2014, it was 13 suicides per 100,000. So they do have a higher rate of suicide than the US. They have some similar statistics to the US and the UK, which is 71% of suicides in Japan are male. And it's the leading cause of death in men aged between 20 and 40. Now, when I talk about any personal experiences I have, um, that tends to be the exact demographic that I'm talking about. It's pretty indicative of a worldwide trend. Yeah. Um, that most victims of suicide are yeah, younger men. Yeah. And that is horrific. And it comes through a lot of pressures that are placed on people all around the world, but certainly things that Japan value in their population, which is uh, working hard, um, bringing home the bacon, basically, yeah. for your family, um, conformity, and feeling that one's worth is associated with how one is perceived by others. Yeah, I think the perception in the West is that Japanese children are raised with the expectation of being the absolute best at everything they try and ever, and being the best at like at everything. And I think the shame that is associated with suicide in more Christian cultures maybe helps mitigate it a little bit more than the Japanese tolerance of that when you're looking at a life that in that moment you feel isn't worthwhile, uh, there's got to be things that make you think that it is and that stop you. Mm -hmm. Whether that be shame or not. Right. I mean, or fear. Really, one of the major bits I want to talk about is the fact that they're, unlike other countries, Japan has seen a big boost in older people committing suicide. And that comes back to what I was talking about with as there's more pressure for younger generations to go into the city, improve themselves, and no longer is being the perfect model of somebody to have a farm, but it's to have an apartment in the city and a white-collar job, the older generations are getting left behind in Japan. I read a couple of horrible stories, um, Japanese, particularly women, in their 70s. One woman talked about how both her brothers hanged themselves, and she had attempted suicide um, because of her financial problems. And another one, which I'll talk about in a minute, because actually she was interviewed not only because she had at times considered committing suicide, but because the Japanese policies that they put into place have worked really, really well to turn her life around and give her hope. One doctor who is an expert in suicide and depression, Nakoi Watanabe, commutes regularly from his university in Tokyo out to the poorer counties around where they might not have access to mental health people and talks about how generally doctors and nurses in Japan are not trained to recognize depression and older people are trained into feeling shame talking about their problems. He talks about how traditional life in Japan is breaking down so there's very little support for the older generation. The children are leaving the countryside and having to go to the cities to work and live. It's not a new problem but it's a newer problem in Japan, I think, Yeah. compared to some of the other countries. I mean, England England found that there was that trend, but it was, you know, well over 100, 200 years ago that that trend started happening, that we started living less off the land and more into the cities. Ultimately, this can lead to a huge, fragile idea of one's self-worth, um, an increased likelihood of considering dying by suicide because people are feeling alienated. They're used to growing up and living in family units, whether that be the men that have gone into the cities to work or the elder generations that have been left behind. And I will say that Japan has 
100% identified this as being a major social issue within their country. In 2007, the government released a nine-step plan, a counter-suicide white paper, which it hopes will curb suicide by 20%. The goal of the white paper is to encourage investigation into the root causes of suicide in order to prevent it. They have committed, initially it was uh, about 12 billion yen, and now they're nearly at 17 or 18 billion yen, committed to helping prevent suicide, uh, suicide prevention strategies. That works out at about 150 to 175 million dollars. Mm-hmm. As again, just in comparison, they have committed only about 100,000, 100 million dollars in the US to dealing with suicide and depression. Yeah. So Japan really are taking it very, very seriously. They're doing a lot of research and a lot of studies in it. And one of the major things that they found is that there needs to be more community activities for the older generation. So this brings us back to the interview that I read with Akio Sato, who's an 81-year-old great-grandmother who talked about how her food was left in the kitchen for her by her family and she eats on her own and how all she aimed for was to be happy for just one hour a day. Um, She said that she cried almost every day and can't afford to move into a retirement home but her family do not talk to her or involve her in their family in their family life. However, Japan have made sure that these more rural communities now have community centers for the older generation. And she goes to fitness classes and she does origami and dancing. And she says that finally she is happy because she has friends. She can talk to other old people when they meet up and she knows that she's not alone and they share the same problems. And I think that's so important to remember that the community understanding that you're not on your own when you feel down that it makes such a such a difference yeah to to even even know that if someone is as unhappy as you are to know that you know you have someone you can talk to and communicate that with yeah and in my experience of depression you may have two three four days or weeks where you feel like you can't get up and do anything but you do and when you do to know that you can give back to those that have supported you through that mm-hmm. by reminding them that they can get up and that it will get better and it will improve and that you do have people to rely on, on lean on, even if it's people online, if it's people in yeah. real life, if it's people that were total strangers before you reached out, there's always someone that's willing to listen to you. And there's always someone that's willing to talk about it. And it's amazing that Japan have identified that that is one of the major problems with their suicide rate was that their national pride of being perfect and putting your best show on Mm -hmm. is detrimental to when you feel weak, where you need to be vulnerable and you need to open up and that they're trying really, really hard to make sure that people feel safe doing that and, and that there's people to listen to them and catch them when they want to fall. So that's, that's the bit about the culture of suicide in Japan. Mm-hmm. We're going to go to the suicide forest, in quote, unquote, of Akihara. I'm going to talk to you a little bit. Not, I will go in. I'm kind of starting in the detail and then broadening out. Mm-hmm. So Akihara, to put it in perspective, they have now stopped releasing numbers as to how many people commit suicide in Akihara. But to put it in perspective... I think the highest number I could find was 106 people in a year, okay. which while does make it one of the top places to commit suicide mm-hmm. in the world, it's a drop in the bucket to the bigger picture of the suicide question. Mm-hmm. Location is not... <laughs> yeah, location is not really the, the, the problem. The problem. Um, okay, why? Why this forest? It boils down to three different main issues one is a couple of books that were released um we have a habit we've noticed of mentioning people and not telling you anything about them (laughs) so this man is Seiko Matsumoto and he wrote a book in called the Tower of Waves in 1960 which is a novel about a woman who is stuck in a scandalous love affair depicted as a heroine she decides to venture into the forest and take her own life the book romanticized the idea of suicide and portrays the forest as a beautiful and peaceful place to end your life. 
Matsumoto was an incredibly famous Japanese author. His books have been published in multiple languages all around the world. He is specifically well known for his crime fiction. And he works very much with the idea of incorporating ideas of human psychology. So this book in particular dealt with the psychology of the area and how committing suicide brought her peace. Um, He had his own stuff going along. He was very anti-American. He, that being said, he also pointed out many of the failings of the Japanese government and their corruption. He was politically radical. Um, It says here, despite or perhaps in reaction to growing up in a very conformist society. Mm. So he associated with like-minded individuals in 1968. He traveled to Cuba as part of the World Cultural Congress, and later that same year he ventured to North Vietnam to meet with the president there. So when they say that he was radically politically radical, are they referring to him just being a communist? I think so. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's what I'm... I, I mean, based on the places he went, I assume yeah. he wasn't going there to yeah. tell them how badly they were doing stuff. If it looks like a duck. Yeah. Um, he continued to write a lot of books into the 70s and 80s. He was awarded a whole load of prizes, the Akutuaga Prize in 1952, the Kichi Kan Prize in 1970, as well as the Mystery Writers of Japan Award in 1957. He produced more than 450 works in his life, and his first book wasn't even published until he was in his 40s. Mm. He was a prolific writer, and it's... I have no idea. I haven't read his books. People actually speak very highly of them. It doesn't matter what your political beliefs. I think people think he was a very talented writer. Yeah. It's a shame that, unfortunately, this one book dealt with this one very powerful subject and mm-hmm. helped inspire people to travel to Akihara to take their life. It's not the only book that's been associated with Akihara for suicide. Among many of the deceased bodies there was copies of a book called the complete suicide manual which was written by waratu surami i did not go into him because honestly if you write a book called the complete suicide manual i don't want to know anything about you the book was made up of 11 different categories of methods to committing suicide it was originally released in 1993 so guys this is like way too late to be writing books that glorify suicide specifically it sold over a million copies and he pegged Akihara, Akihara as the perfect place to die. It seems like that would be more of a problem, more of a, a contributing factor than the Tower of Waves would be. You would, yeah. But yeah. I mean, the Tower of Waves did come out 20. I think it's more that the earlier. trend started with the Tower of Waves, yeah. and then this guy who wrote the complete suicide manual jumped on the bag and wagon. And like, bag and wagon. Bag and wagon. Okay. Um, there are a couple of other reasons as to why Akihara is associated with suicide and that is to do with a Japanese practice called now this is where I get it wrong again Ubusati which translates as abandoning an old woman Mm. it's actually a mythical practice so this is a legend versus a real practice Mm -hmm. of senicide in Japan whereby an infirm or elderly relative was carried to a mountain in some other remote, desolate place and left there to die. There is no evidence that this was ever actually a common custom. (laughs) But it is considered, and this is crazy, guys, I understand that, but it is considered an ideal way of being. The Buddhist allegory, uh, this is the poem about it, in the depths of the mountain whom it was for the aged mother snapped, one twig after another, Heedless of herself, she did so for the sake of her son. And it is a poem about a son who carries his mother up a mountain on his back to leave her up the top of the mountain and die. And she is so selfless that as he carries her up the mountain, she stretches out her arms, catching the twigs and scattering them in her wake to create a path so that her son will be able to find his way home. Is the Well, that's horrifying. But is the only connection to that poem 
in terms of Japanese culture, just the idea that once you become too old, you sort of lose any value. You're a burden on society, okay. and therefore... But it was never a practice in in the culture, so I'm curious as to how that... I think it was a Buddhist ideal. Mm. I d- and sorry, if some... Please... If you are a practicing Buddhist out there and you have any ideas on this, let me know. It seems very anti-anything I know about the Buddhist culture and religion. Um, but the only the only thing I could find to it was that it was a Buddhist allegory. Okay. Um, and Akihara was supposed to be one of the major places that this happened. Now we're going to go into the mythology. Akihara is part of a much bigger region of Japan, so we're going to talk about that, which is a part of the incredibly famous Mount Fuji region of Japan. Now, Mount Fuji is located on an island. By the way, I learned that it was an island yesterday as I was reading this because I... Don't read your notes beforehand. Well, I pulled off the geography bit and didn't read it through because, honestly, I'm just reading this off. Um, In the highest mountain in Japan... It's the highest mountain in Japan, standing at 3,762 meters. I have actually been there, and it is spectacular. The pictures are nice. It really doesn't let you down. Hmm. Um, we were there in March as the cherry blossoms were out, and it was phenom- It was one of the most life-changing holidays I've ever had, but certainly one of those... I'll sit in my chair when I'm in my 90s, and this will be one of the memories I go back to. Mm-hmm. Um the mountain stands about 62 miles southwest of Tokyo. So when we went out there, it only took about an hour. Just to give you an idea, it's very close to... It, it, Tokyo is this huge, massive metro, metropolis city. And it's one of the closest rural regions to Tokyo. Isn't Metropolis the name of the city in Superman? Metropolis is also the name of a big city. You're going to Google this now, aren't you? No. Okay. I'll keep talking while you find out whether I just made that up. It's exceptionally symmetrical, which in the Japanese idea of perfect makes it the perfect mountain. It has snow capped for about five months a year, and it's used as cultural icon of Japan and frequently depicted in many of its arts and photography. Um, according to the UNECOO, which is like the United Nations... I don't know, whatever. Mount Fuji has inspired artists and poets, becoming the object of pilgrimage for centuries. It recognizes 25 sites of cultural interest within the Mount Fuji locality. These 25 locations include the mountain, the Shinto Temple, Fujisan Hongku Sengan Tasha, as well as the Buddhist Tazen... Oh, God, I learned how to say this while we were out there. Chazensky, it's not how you say it, her temple founded in 1290. And... Um, it it's truly one of those places that's just surrounded by legends and myths. So the first recorded ascent was in 663 by an anonymous monk. And the summit has been thought to be sacred since ancient times and was forbidden by women until the late 1860s. Two now, women, not by women, right? Yeah. Oh, sorry. By two women in the late 90s. Women were like, I'm not going up there. <laughs> <laughs> um. I told Adam this yesterday, and I still didn't verify my facts, but I believe the first Westerner to head up the mountain was in the late 1800s, and they summited it in about eight hours, which Adam is a huge rock climbing, mounting, hiking person. Big mountains are cool. So the incredible detail that I'm giving you on the Fuji topography (laughs) here is based on the fact that I assume Adam now wants to go climb it. I want to go to Japan really bad anyway. Now, Metropolis. Oh, yeah, Metropolis. So, Metropolis is just a big city. Thank you. But it is also just a big city in Superman. So, I was only half wrong. Yeah, but it's a name for a big city. Yeah, I thought it wasn't. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, so. Fuji uh, last erupted in 1708, but its biggest eruption was 1864 AD. CE. eighteen sixty four CE, which actually created much of the topography that you see around Mount Fuji right now, including the forest of Akihara. It created 
a couple of lakes. The five, the Fuji Five Lakes are gorgeous and surrounded by flowers. And definitely, when Adam goes there, he should go and see them. It also created several lava tubes in the Akihara Forest. So while it's known as the Suicide Forest, it's actually a massively visited place by tourists. And children at school go out there and they learn about different forms of geology and eco- uh, ecology out there. So I know that you're going to go into some of the lava tubes in a bit, in a second. But what does that mean geographically or geologically? What What is a lava tube? Uh, it's literally, if you think of, have you seen the pictures of the volcanoes where there's one big shoot that goes out the top that you always see like oh, offshoots? It's like like it's like a tree, like a vent. Okay. Yeah, okay. like a vein or a vent. Um, People go in those? Yeah. That's mad. There's three of them, which are particularly famous. The Naraswara Ice Cave, which was where they actually used to make and create ice in the before refrigeration. It was declared a national monument of Japan in 1929. The Fuduku Wind Cave, which is so large it actually has enough air circulation in the cave on its own that you can go in there. The walls of the cave are mostly made of basalt. And there's icicle. It's so deep in the mountains that there are icicles in there, even in summer. And from the Edo period to the Minji period, this cave was used to keep the eggs of silkworms, and they actually used to hibernate and hatch silkworms out in there. There's one more called the Bat Cave, which just sounds really cool. (laughs) Oh, yeah, we've talked about two superheroes in this episode. Uh Uh-huh. This is where the Bat Cave is. (laughs) Uh, uh, no reality is it's a big old cave and a lot of bats live in there but you know let's just call it the bat cave because that's way more fun all right so quickly um i know that you said that there's like a shinto temple Mm -hmm. or probably a few um and it sounds like the lava tubes were very culturally important Mm -hmm. in the in the day but were they did they have any religious significance i don't i didn't find out anything about the lava tubes having any religious significance although from being out there i would say that most things in japan have at least some level some level of religious significance or some god associated with them there are there is a god associated with fuji which we'll get to in a minute um and there's also some uh ghosts and ghouls associated with the area too yes akihara is also known as the sea of trees but um, People don't call it that. No. And it is created because it's made of hardened lava. So the whole base of it is hardened lava. This actually has a couple of things which... Does that mean there's no grass growing? So it's all trees. I couldn't see any pictures of like an under Eesh, underground in it. That's creepy. Well, and this is it. This is one of the reasons why it's got this reputation, right? Mm-hmm. So lava is super porous, which means it helps absorb all the sound which means that when you're in there, you don't hear ambient sound, mm-hmm. which makes, which if you've ever seen a horror film, the moment they huh. turn off the background music or the background sound, suddenly everything gets way creepier. That's how you build tension. Yep. And this, this forest naturally does it for you. Mm. It's also famous because it sends navigational compasses haywire. Mm-hmm. It's only 12 meters, uh, 12, mi- uh, 12 square miles, which isn't huge. No. But the forest is really, really dense, and needles of magnetic compasses will move if you place them directly onto the lava, aligning with the rock's natural magnetism as opposed to the Earth's natural magnetism, Mm -hmm. which varies depending on iron content and strength by location. So if you move your compass around and put it on the ground in the forest, it will tell you north is 100 different directions. Each time you pick it up and put it down, it will direct you a different way. Why would you ever use your compass like that? Indeed. And actually, (laughs) if you hold it at natural height, it works just like a normal compass should. Yeah. But one of the big issues they do have with the forest is people get lost in there a lot. And trying to find people is a real issue. Um, very specifically in Akihara, they understand the reputation that the forest has developed actually attracts people there. So they've gone through a lot of steps to try and keep people safer or at least help them keep themselves safer. Yeah. One is that many of the car parks actually have designated, or the more remote park, park parks, car parks, actually have designated people that are there to talk to people who are about to go into the woods to make sure that they 
understand that there is somebody well no just understand that there is somebody there to talk to if they'd rather talk to somebody Mm -hmm. um they do regular search parties through the woods of volunteers because one of the more depressing facts of it is that quite a lot of people go in there think about committing suicide try to commit suicide change their mind and can't find their way out they're also there to stop the legend and i understand that what I'm doing here is perpetuating it in some ways, but I hope that what we're doing is dealing with it in a way that doesn't make it funny or cool or romantic. Yeah. It's just a forest. Um, and they're trying to stop people like that dumbass YouTuber. Yeah. God. Who I don't know anything about, but I called him some little YouTube dude yesterday and Adam was quick to defend that he is not some, not defend oh. him but the unfortunate fact of the matter is that his audience is gigantic and they're all children. Uh, so that's no good. So running around the forest videoing people hanging from trees is the exact opposite of what the Japanese government would like when they're trying to reduce the reputation and reduce the cool factor. Because it is arguably a very... I mean, it, it could be... Um, it's... <laughs> It, it's cool for, like, actual cool reasons. It's, like, it has very neat geographic features, and it has a fun bit of folklore attached to it. It's just unfortunate that it has been attributed this title. Yeah, it's it's not something that people should be aiming for. Mm. I think that... I think that the Japanese government understand that stopping people going to Akihara is not going to stop people trying to take their own lives but the fact of the matter is is when you go into that dense forest your family never has any closure they never know what's happened and if you change your mind they've got you've got no way out mm-hmm. so they're working on the bigger picture stuff too and and like i said it is a small picture place this is not like thousands more than thousands tens hundreds of thousands of people go to this area every year and a tiny fraction of them commit suicide. Yeah, it's just indicative of the whole, the whole, the whole perceived culture. In Japan. Yeah, it adds to a legend. It's a bit like when you have a abandoned mental asylum, and suddenly everyone says it's haunted. Yeah. I mean, this place has been legendary for many years. It's been a creepy place, so now it's kind of perpetuating its own myth. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the. I'm going to talk about the darker myth first. And then we'll go on to the fun princess of Fuji. Because Adam fell in love with her yesterday. So I figure I'd, figure we'd finish on a good note. Hmm. So Adam did talk about these a little bit last week about the yuri. Yokai. Well, he talked about the yokai, which is a form of supernatural monster and spirit. And apparently Akahara is full of them. But very specifically, it is more associated with the yuri, which are figures of Japanese folklore which are basically the western version the western version is a ghost um it specifically means a ruined or departed spirit it is spirits barred from a peaceful afterlife according to traditional japanese beliefs all humans have a spirit or a soul it according to japanese beliefs all humans have a spirit or a soul called a rikyon Recon. When a person dies, the recon leaves the body and enters a form of purgatory, where it waits for the proper funeral and post-funeral rites to be performed so it may join their ancestors. If this is done incorrectly, then the soul can return to Earth during the August festival of Ubon to receive thanks for all that they did for their family throughout their life. However, if the person dies in a sudden or violent manner, such as murder or suicide, and the p- proper rites have not been performed, then they transform into your into a yuri which can bridge the gap back to the physical world once a thought enters the mind of a dying person that is negative such as revenge love jealousy hatred or sorrow that yuri will come back to complete the last action thought of before returning to the cycle of reincarnation now obviously this is associated with the forest because almost all the all the people that have died there have died in a negative way and many of them they are never found Mm -hmm. there's 
horrible stories about how years later they'll find a pair of shoes of someone who went missing or the forest is so dense and so thick Mm -hmm. and while it's impossible to navigate yeah and and impossible to find everybody that gets lost in there Mm -hmm. let alone return them for their last rites and to be buried properly within the time frames that japanese culture it's like a perfect storm for ghosts for becoming a creepy land yeah for becoming i mean for becoming a creepy bit of land for gathering all these legends for growing ghosts um it really is the uh, i mean it's like self-perpetuating it's it's yeah the yuri exists on earth till it can be laid to a rest either by performing the missing rituals or resolving the emotional conflict that ties it to the physical plane basically your archetypal revenge seeking ghost um the yuri's appearance is very uniform Compared to, I think, in Western cultures when we talk about ghosts. And we'll get into ghosts because I want to look at some of the more uniform-looking ghosts. Um, They, often when we think of ghosts in Western cultures, we think of them as being dressed in whatever it was that they died and looking like the person they were when they lived. They're always Victorian. (laughs) Always Victorian. (laughs) Or Civil War soldiers. Mm -hmm. The eerie is slightly different. Um... It's usually dressed in white clothing, signifying the white burial kimono used in Edo period funeral rituals. Um, The kimono can either be plain or unlined, or it can be inscribed with Buddha sutras. They sometimes have a forehead cover, which is a small white triangular piece of cloth tied around the head. I think everyone can imagine what that would look like if you were dressed in a white kimono with a white piece of cloth tied around your head. Um, Quite typically... Japanesey. <laughs> um, they would usually have long black disheveled hair, which some believe is to be is a trademark carried over from Kabuki theater, which is something that I really want to talk about again at a later point because Kabuki's got a huge amount of legends and traditions associated with it. The hands of the Yuri are said to dangle lifelessly from the wrists, which are held outstretched with the elbows near the body. They typically lack legs and float in the air. These features originated in the Edo period and were quickly copied over to Kabuki. And they are also frequently de- depicted as being accompanied by a pair of floating flames or will-o'-the-wisps in eerie colors such as blue, green, or purple. These ghostly flames are separate parts of the ghost rather than independent spirits. This is one of my favorite facts about Yuri. They are one of the only creatures in Japanese mythology to have a preferred haunting time. <laughs> Between 2 and 2.30 a.m. Gotta work on a schedule. Yeah, I mean. Who doesn't? You don't want to be late for your haunting. (laughs) (laughs) You don't want to do it during daylight. No one will get the gist. Do the the spirits look like their bodies? I know that they're not dressed in the same way, but do they? You mean physically characteristics? Like like the face. Face-wise, I couldn't really find out any information about it. I got the impression that they all looked the same. Okay, and you did it. A really good job of describing their physical characteristics, but and I'm sure that this is on purpose because I think the original Ring, the movie The Ring, was based on Japanese folklore, and the character in that film is portrayed in exactly the way you described. She's cool. got really long black hair, and she's wearing a white robey type thingy. I never had the guts to watch it. It's very spooky. <laughs> um, okay. So we're going to finish on a happy one, and then we'll go on to Adam's happy one, which is I am going to tell you the tale of Konohana Sakuyahimi. Yep. Hanos. Okay. From this point onwards, and because they do in the bit of article I'm going to read you, Sakuyahimi is how they refer to her, so I'm going to just go with that. And then even then, I'll probably get it wrong. You just call it like Saku. Saka. Saka. Or Hasaki. Soccer. <laughs> Just desecrate the name of one of the Japanese uh, gods. Yes, that will get us a wide audience in Japan. Uh-huh. Okay, so she is the blossom princess and symbol of delicate earthly life. She was the daughter of a mountain god, Ohayam Matsumi. I might have got that one right. She is often considered an avatar of Japanese life, especially since her symbol is the cherry blossom. She is also the goddess of Mount Fuji and all volcanoes. 
she okay so basically a badass yeah she met her future husband Neji on the seashore and they fell in love Neji asked her father <laughs> three different ways to pronounce his name <laughs> I know it feels so awful that's fine I feel so culturally ignorant you are <laughs> I'm, I'm trying okay she he asked her father for her hand in marriage and her father actually suggested that instead of marrying the younger daughter he proposed to the elder daughter at least he didn't say no he kind of did finally but Nigi 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 N-I-N-I-G-I N-I-N-I N-I-N-I-G-I Nini G Nini G yeah okay we'll go with that Nini G. I can't believe you completely neglected like a, a whole syllable in that <laughs> I'm name. I'm really dyslexic. We talk <laughs> about this a lot. Okay. Um, he refused to marry the older daughter and said he was in love with the younger daughter. Because he refused the elder daughter, who was the rock princess, human lives are said to be short and fleeting, like the cherry blossoms instead of long and enduring like the stone. That's kind of nice, though, because it also implies that human is beautiful like mm -hmm. a cherry blossom and delicate mm, and delicate so this is where she becomes more badass or <laughs> crazy slightly unhinged <laughs> she became pregnant on the first night of her wedding and on this the first night of her w wedding what marriage okay okay first I, time okay yeah first night yeah got pregnant first time yep which sent her husband into a tell sense spin of suspicion be very can i'd be very confused as to how because it implies that... Okay, let's hear your theory it, on women's sexual reproduction. It, no, it implies that she immediately was showing as pregnant as as well. Because I'm assuming he's a god, right? Yeah. Well, no, he is a god. So I'm assuming that when she becomes pregnant with his child, she is just immediately, like, nine months in, baby's about to be born. That's why I would, I'd be suspicious of that as well. Maybe, if, or maybe gods are more like elephants and their pregnancies last for years oh, so they couldn't really God. identify when it happened that'd be miserable okay uh, anyway she was really mad that he didn't trust her yes yeah, so because bearing in mind these guys had like a love match this was not like some god threw her into right it wasn't like a standard quote-unquote god pregnancy story which no. usually are right. non-consensual <laughs> um she was really annoyed so she shut herself in a doorless hut which she then set fire to, declaring that the child would not be hurt if it were truly the offspring of him. him. <laughs> Inside the hut, she had three sons and obviously proved that she was faithful. How did she shut herself in a doorless hut? I, she uh, Wasn't she a goddess too? Maybe it had windows. She was a blossom princess, I figured. I don't know. Um, shrines have been built to her for many, many centuries, mm -hmm. um, particularly on volcanoes. Uh, it's believed that she will keep Mount Fuji from erupting. However, many of her shrines have repeatedly been destroyed by volcanic eruptions. And just to add to her ever so slight, she does kind of sound like she might be kind of on that like crazy hot scale from How oh, I Met yeah. Your Mother. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> One of the other mountains was a little bit bigger than Fuji, so she got really mad and knocked it down. So was that an, an eruption that, that caved in part of a volcano, or does that mountain just apparently not exist? It was the Yatsutaki Mountains, and it was, uh, it's, I, I don't believe it's a volcano. I believe it's just a shorter mountain than Fuji. Oh, okay, and it's just nearby. And it's nearby. So that is Mount Fuji, <laughs> Akihara, and hopefully... I structured it a bit better so that it made more sense to the funness of what we're trying to do here. <laughs> yeah, fun, the funness. It was. I, I appreciate you. Uh, we literally started recording Adam's segment about 10 minutes in. He was like, yeah, I, I don't think I can do this now. could not finish my segment. And that is two reasons. One, my notes are a mess for this episode. <laughs> and I could barely get through them. And my brain was broken from the Akihara. So I really do appreciate the co-hosts for... Allowing us to re-record this entire segment. And hopefully it's better. I think that felt pretty good. I like that you gave yourself an A on your <laughs> notes. I literally wrote Akihara down in so many different ways on this note so that <laughs> I wouldn't mispronounce it. And I went on YouTube and listened to how they pronounce it on YouTube. I did that as well. 
for one of my names because I pronounced because we're gonna dig into some Norse mythology on my end. I have um, to say, I'm really glad we're doing this because yesterday he was telling me about it, and I was just like, the names are, are unpronounceable. Yeah, that was especially if you're us. I wanted to say very quickly, what do you think that does for you in like a religious sense, where you build a shrine <laughs> on a volcano and you say the god of this shrine will not allow the volcano to erupt, and then the shrine is destroyed by an erupting volcano. I think it says, as somebody that is not got faith myself, <laughs> but when you have faith... It takes a lot of faith. You have an ability to be able to see the points that you, maybe would have been missed by other people. To see reason in, in, yes. in what could be d- described as reasonless destruction. Yeah. Um, I just is she still relevant in like Buddhist or Shinto? Yeah, they're stuff? still building. They're still building. That's really cool. I like that. Um, and she's Adam's future wife once she's done with her god. When she's done with raising her three kids, you know what? I'll raise those kids. <laughs> oh, you're such a generous man. <laughs> I don't even care. I don't even care. All right, and we're back. Yes, we we didn't go anywhere, but went on a long tangent about how these new microphone setups are working. Okay, so I'm gonna talk a bit about. Norse cosmology, um, specifically in reference to a fun little squirrel that I found while digging through some some Norse stuff. Yay! So we're gonna fun do a, squirrel. We're going to do a fun rodent. Unfortunately, he, as a character in Norse folklore, doesn't have a lot of information. So some of the stuff I say, and I'll preface this when I say it, might be a little bit conjectury on my end. I'd like to hear what Dora has to think about it as well. Um, I think you're a phenomenal storyteller, Adam. <laughs> Thank you, Brian. Yeah, so let's just dig into it a bit. So the center of Norse cosmology revolves around a very large ash tree. Ash. The center of Norse <laughs> cosmology revolves ash tree? revolves around a giant ash tree. Okay. Better than an ashtray. Better than an ashtray. Although I do want <laughs> someone who is much better at drawing than me to draw that if it doesn't offend anybody in any way. The name of the ash tree is Yggdrasil, I believe is how it's pronounced. Not spelled that way. That's how it's pronounced, apparently. Sounds like someone's rap name. <laughs> it's I- my rap name. Yggdrasil. Uh, it translates to Odin's gallow. Uh, Odin hung himself, hanged himself from the top tree of Yggdrasil for some reason. Isn't he a god? Yeah. But there is a poem that I didn't write down, and I can't remember why he did it, but he did do it. I, It was some – Odin, I, from what I can tell, was always a sacri- self-sacrificing god. So he sacrificed himself on the tree to do something that I can't remember and didn't write down. So sorry okay. So sorry about that. There's also a, there's a second tree in Norse cosmology called Lerior. Lerior. It sits on the top of Valhalla, and its name translates to the – a ranger of betrayal, and that's how they attach it to Yggdrasil. Okay, so what's Valhalla? Valhalla, the that's where you go when you die. Okay, in Norse mythology, it's if you are a an honorable, and if you are an honorable warrior, when you die, you go to the halls of Valhalla, and basically, once you get there, you eat and drink for eternity. Okay, it's like the coolest afterlife that I've ever found in one any hell of a party. It's a big party forever. Okay. God, that sounds like my idea of nightmare. <laughs> I'm loving lockdown. No parties. <laughs> and they, those trees are, they have two different names, but they are associated with each other in some way or another. And it's usually just because they sit in the center of the universe. Yggdrasil is where the gods assemble. So we're going to go back to that a little bit, and mm-hmm. then we'll sort of shift between the two. Okay. I'll try to preface which tree I'm talking about. Yggdrasil is where the gods assemble, and it connects the nine Norse worlds. A lot of these names are... Impossible for me to pronounce, but they're basically where the gods assemble. That's one of the worlds where the humans live. That's Midgard. So that would basically just be Earth. And then Niflheim, which is hell. So those are like the big three. Um, and they are important for the denizens. Of... Those are important to reference because of the creatures that live on the tree. Okay. So Yggdrasil exists the worlds are off of it but then it is also its own world ecosystem okay yeah it's a little bit confusing i don't fully understand how they rationalize it in terms of their religion in their 
as it relates to the natural world. So there's a very famous British author called Enid Blyton mm-hmm. who wrote a book called The Magic Faraway Tree. Okay. Where you'd climb to the top of the tree and you would go through the clouds and you'd be in a different world. Yeah. And you didn't know which world you were going to climb into when you got to the top of the tree, but all these people lived on the tree too. So this is kind of how I'm That's saying That's cool. It. It's So this, is, this idea isn't completely unique to the Norse. No, and I'm pretty sure she the, came many thousands <laughs> yeah. of years later. The, wor- so. the world tree is also very relevant in Asian religious beliefs. Is it like the tree of life? Yes, it is a bit like the tree of life. And I might explore it a bit in the in okay. Eastern culture because I think that's very, very interesting to see how two cultures that existed so separately could com- have very mm-hmm. similar um, belief systems. So, yeah. Yggdrasil, we're going to go back to that. So it connects the nine worlds. It also has three roots that spread out over three other areas of the cosmology and and the the Norse cosmology. A place called Asher, where the fates decide the fates of men. They're called the Norns in Norse mythology. They're described as three women. They sit around a well. They decide what happens to you. They're like the fates in the Hercules movie. Okay. It's very easy and very helpful that we have Hercules. that we have Disney movies to help us pinpoint and yep. put this it. in the real world for us. Another route goes over the world of the Frost Jotnar, which are big giants. Uh, big giants are a very popular thing in Norse mythology. There's also a spring underneath that route, and it's a spring that is full of knowledge, and Odin, again in a self-sacrificing manner, cut out his own eye. And then the third route, again, goes to Niflheim, their hell. He cut out his eye so he could drink from a well? He sacrificed his eye to drink from a well. I'm not sure what knowledge he gleaned. <laughs> Maybe he gleaned the knowledge that you shouldn't sacrifice your eye in order to drink some water, but okay, he did. Maybe that's a story I'll explore at a, okay. a later date. Moving on. The third route goes to Niflheim, uh, the bubbling, boiling spring from where all water flows. Okay. What's interesting... All right, so now that we've sort of talked about the function of this tree, we're going to talk about the things that live on this tree because that's where we get to the fun squirrel. Yay, fun squirrel. This is not a super – Norse mythology is sort of hard to research because it's been so sort of bastardized. Mm -hmm. Firstly, they didn't have a written language like most of those ancient cultures, so a lot of this stuff isn't written down. The stuff that was written down was changed by – know other cultures that they interacted with and the romantic period came along and as we learned with the basilisk they ruined everything because they tried to give everything a latin name and damn romantics and tried to germanicize everything so it's a bit difficult and hard to do research on stuff like this so this might be a bit dry i apologize we're getting to the fun squirrel just stick with me for a bit so the denizens of yggdrasil include the nameless eagle and the falcon who sits between his eyes he lives at the top of the tree. So this, this eagle's gigantic. Okay. He's nameless. There's no record of him having a name anywhere. Oh, okay. And a hawk sits... Banging between his eyes. Banging between his eyes. Cool. And they're just the knowledge birds. Nice. They sit up there and they're full of knowledge. There are also the four heart, which are stags. They're okay. red stags, which is, I, I think, a unique animal to the Nordic countries, maybe, because we definitely don't have them in the States, and I don't think they're in the UK either. Stags is in... But they're like massive red stags. They're I called red stags. I don't know. We use stag a lot for symbology in the UK. Yeah, it's huge in, yeah, in symbolism. The stag is like very, yeah, very Yeah, but I don't symbolic. know whether... The, yeah. So they travel up and down the tree, mm-hmm. um, and they eat the branches of, okay. of Yggdrasil. They're said to represent the four elements... The four seasons, the four phases of the moon. When I get into why Yggdrasil is a thing in terms of cosmology, we can explain what they represent in the okay. natural world. There are some historians who theorized that they represent the wind because their names translate to the dead one, thundering in the ear, the unconscious one, and thriving slumber. Just some really cool names. Those are very cool names. When when you don't have a, a lot of information to pick out of, you sort of find the translations for stuff as that's how I'm filling this episode, basically, is with the translations of. <laughs> well, that kind of tells you because it's literal. Yeah, and it does sort of, it, it makes the reason these characters exist make sense. Mm-hmm. 
Another historian theorizes that it's actually one stag. Okay. Whose name is Ike Pierneer. That's probably pronounced incorrectly. Okay. Uh, he stands upon Valhalla. So he actually refers to the second tree. He refers to Laro Roll. Okay. Stands upon Valhalla. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> so there's him. And then there's a goat whose name is Hydron. He's a goat. He also feasts upon the branches and produces mead for the warriors That's who are living helpful. in Valhalla. So there are two creatures that are associated with the second tree, and they stand upon Valhalla and interact with the warriors in that way. And then the other denizens, like an Yggdrasil, I'm a little confused as to where those two things split. It seems like the one tree refers specifically to the afterlife. Okay. Oh, I see. In the roots of Yggdrasil dwells Nidhogg, the giant serpent, and his whole deal is he chews on the roots of Yggdrasil and tries to eat through the roots, and if, if he is successful... Is he he like a devil character? Sort of. So I managed to find a bit of a translation for his name. Uh, Nid, or Nid, uh, is an idea of your loss of status, or you're a villain in that sense. But he also... So it's a bit like the Satan character in, in the sense that he was cast out of heaven and then tortures the souls of the wicked, which is sort of a weird dichotomy when you think about that character. Nidhogg, in the same sense, has some sort of loss of status as a villain, but he also consumes the bodies of adulterers, cowards, and... What was the last thing? The, like the three big crimes... The three big things that the Norse Murderers? Found. Yes, that's the one. Murder. Okay. I can't believe I couldn't think of that. <laughs> Murderers, adulterers, and then the other one. Cowards. He, yeah, he can, like, consumes their bodies. Okay, as long as we're all, as long as we're all aware that, that cowardness coward... and murdering someone are the same. Craven, cravenness and murder are, are on the same level. So he he is under the tree, and he consumes those bodies as well as chews through the roots of the, okay. of the world tree. And so this is where we get to Ratatoskir was the character I was going to do research on and ended up just doing a deep dive into the cosmology of this whole thing. Fun Squirrel. Fun Squirrel. So he is not associated with any of the nine worlds or the three roots. He travels up and down the length of Yggdrasil uh, transporting gossip. I like him. So he goes to the top. He's hanging out with the hawk and the nameless eagle. And they say, man, that Nidhogg, he's a real jerk. Well, she would stop eating this tree. And Ratatoskir, being the little devil that he is, goes down to Nidhogg and says, you won't believe what these creatures said about you. It's just a gossip queen. Yeah, he's a journalist. Okay. It's interesting because he, it seems rather benign when you when you say it like that. Like he's just basically baiting these two characters into mm-hmm. being aggravated with I each other. I love that that translates to you as a journalist. Well, I mean, come on now. <laughs> as the journalist. <laughs> Um, but the it's a bit more malicious than that, it, it, it seems. Because if Nidhogg is successful in chewing through the roots of Yggdrasil, it causes Ragnarok and the world ends. Okay. And it seems that the more aggravated he is, the more he chews on, on the roots. Okay. So the squirrel coming down and saying that the gods up top are talking... Are talking smack. It's theorized that he is... Too harder. That he is too small to cause Ragnarok himself... So he is trying to instigate those who are powerful enough to do it. Okay. Which I find very interesting because those aspirations sort of mirror Loki, but they don't really have a relation to each other in terms of characters. Oh, okay. So I have this sort of bit of conjecture that Loki, at, at a certain point, the gods are sick of Loki. They say, you are fooling around too much, causing us a bunch of mischief. So they they bring him to a cave, and they put his two sons in the cave with him. They transform one of his sons into a wolf. That son eats his other son. Okay. Odin then takes his second, the eaten son's entrails, and they bind Loki to the the tree of life. Maybe after all of this, this is why Odin felt so bad that he hung himself from a tree. That could be, but I think that happened beforehand. I don't don't understand God. I don't think Odin feels any shame for any of the things that he's done. Okay. So Loki is bound to the, the tree of life. And then his whole thing after that is trying to cause Ragnarok because that's the only thing that will free him into the cosmos again. So okay. I have this sort of like conjecture theory that maybe Ratatoskir, while 
traversing Yggdrasil, ran into Loki, was like, you know, I'm an agent of mischief as well. And Loki said, hey, could you just see if you can cause the end of the world? Because there's no way I'm getting out of this nice otherwise. Nice bit of editorializing there. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That's his, that's his thing. He's a fun squirrel. I kind of wish that there was more about him. He's really only referenced in a few lines of, of a poem, the Prose Edda, which is a series of, of poems and epics. It's sort of like their odyssey. I don't think I've read as much poetry or heard as much poetry since we started doing this. Oh, I know. I know. I know. <laughs> I've definitely never read as much poetry. <laughs> so now we're going to step away from that, and we're going to move into the natural world. Okay. We're going to figure out why the Norse believed Yggdrasil was the center of the universe. Okay. So Bjorn Johnson, who is a, another historian, Norse, Norse historian, believes that the world tree is astronomical. Okay. He, that makes sense. He believes that the characters and the features represent stars and planets. Mm-hmm. He says if you look at the Milky Way in the northern hemisphere of the Earth, the same way the Norse would have, they have a very clear view of the Milky Way, and the way that it stretches across the sky, it looks like the center of a tree with branches coming out on either side. Okay. Apparently. I have never seen the Milky Way in this in this way. Not as a tree. I mean, I've seen the Milky Way, but I don't know that I would have ever... I probably never would have described it as a tree. No. It's amazing to look at, though. It is. It's, it's beautiful. So all of these characters would be constellations that the, okay. the Norse were... Out in their longboats doing their Norsey stuff. That's the squirrel who's going to try to cause the end of the world. So when I was talking about the four hearts who travel up and down the the world tree, they people think that they were just, they think that their names translating directly to ki- like a kind of wind or names of wind would refer to them being the wind that blows the clouds. Okay. So when you look at a cirrus cloud, which is the really long stringy one, mm-hmm. That also could have been described as the branch of a tree. Okay. And so them eating the branches, in big air quotes, is really just wind blowing clouds around. Okay. Which is nice. I'm glad that, like, I can at least... And revealing stars and stuff. Yeah, and I'm glad that I can at least anchor this in reality in some way, because honestly, doing this research as quickly as I did was a little unsatisfying. Okay. Um, That's a shame. Simply because... All of this information comes out of one poem, and it's kind of hard to suss out. Mm-hmm. So Bjorn Johnson believes that, again, that the world tree is astronomical and that the Edda poetic is all about navigation. It just refers to how they oriented themselves using the Milky Way and the stars and constellations. Well, I mean, we touched on that last week with Pegasus, which yeah. is that they very much associated with gods and stars. Yeah, and that the stars aren't fixed in place. No. That they when they move, it's it is actually a an entity that is that yeah, is. Yeah, like Pegasus in the world. was given the ability to become stars so that he could move freely around the sky. Mm, yeah. It was very, very, very cool. And he also references something called the Bifrost, which is the name of the Milky Way or a rainbow. Oh, okay. In Norse mythology. It's interesting because in a lot of Cultures, the rainbow is, you know, you have the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Or I can't remember, I don't know how it really is referenced in other cultures, but that is the, obviously the big one. Yeah. In Norse mythology, a milk, the Milky Way or a rainbow was the road to hell. The bottom of the rainbow, the bottom of the Milky Way tree is how you get to That's Nibelheim. Sad. It's not nearly as fun as. No, everyone wants to go to Valhalla. Yeah. Yeah, Valhalla being, being heaven, but you follow the Milky Way. That's one way ticket to hell, I guess. Or the Shimmering Road to Asgard, which is another word, which is the the realm where the gods live. Cool. One of the nine worlds. Yeah. So yeah. So again, uh, that the Milky Way was more similar to looking like a tree in the northern regions, visually, uh, and its association with the pathway. So it's, I guess, it's just indicative of the culture, the Norse culture, that they were highly nomadic and mm-hmm. constantly traveling around. So they're or they're. Use of the Milky Way in terms of orientation would make sense, and in it being the pathway to either hell, yeah, or, absolutely, or Asgard. So that's that's my my deep dive into Ratatoskir, which basically just turned into a light skimming of Norse cosmology, which <laughs> I butchered in several instances. Sweet, that's what we're here for. Yeah, poor learning. Yes, top to bottom. My God. 
all right, that was a lot. Yeah. A lot from a different reason that mine was a lot. Yeah. It ended up not being nearly as fun, so I don't think it was as much of a palate cleanser as I wanted it to be. Um, so maybe if I ever come across a character that skimpy in detail again, I will just write my own story. And you were then, just trying way too hard to be clever. Yeah, and then just read it out on the internet. Okay. I like it. Yep. Check out our Reddit. Check out the Reddit. The we have a Reddit. Called a Reddit. A Reddit. The Legendary Tales. <laughs> All right. Uh, guys, that was a, I think, frankly, to say a weird episode for us. Very bizarre. But next week, we've already planned to go back to something that we feel a little bit more comfortable with. And this time, we're actually going to do a legendary person. Yeah. Someone who has notoriety. Yeah. But, like, actual people who historically Existed. existed yeah if you haven't seen our cover art from our podcast while well, we have stuck in the myth and legend element of it the idea of something or someone being legendary extends way beyond just norse gods yeah. and next week we want to address a couple of people um and i think we've already decided who we're doing yeah. i'm gonna talk about db cooper and i'm gonna talk about joan of arc so that'll be a fun one Please don't take this as a reference guide for how all of the episodes will be. No. Nope. Uh, next week should be a bit more lighthearted and. Last week was fun. Less researchy. Last week was fun. Last week was really. really last fun. Fi- last week was good. This is just a blip. Hope you learned something. Hope it made you think. <laughs> Hope that you go and do the research yourself, because honestly, it sounds like I couldn't have been bothered. I, I, okay, from my perspective, he's been researching this a lot. Yeah. So don't let him fool you. His <laughs> scrolls of notes. They're a nightmare. They're impossible to discern. Eh, onwards and upwards. All right, bye, guys. Bye.